All right, thank you. Let's open our Bibles together this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians and the 8th chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'll invite you to uh, read along in your copy of the Bible as uh, I read the scripture for us from the New American Standard Version. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge Dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their weak conscience when it is weak, their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I may not cause my brother to stumble. Well, these seem like strange words, far out of touch with where we live in the end of the 20th century. But in fact, they're very vital to what we are facing in our world today. Paul in this chapter is confronting a new concern that the people in Corinth had written to him about. It begins with a matter of Christian liberty, as he addresses here, which Paul has already touched upon in chapter 6 and verse 12 in our study. But we're going to find that this theme carries through actually chapter 11. So what Paul wants to talk about here introduces a whole subject that generally is under the category of Christian living. And it will take four chapters of this book for him to give his heart regarding what he wants to say. The cultural issue that brings the issue of Christian liberty into focus here is the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. He's talking about pagan worship. There were times when animals were offered to these pagan gods. And uh, when that was done, the meat of the sacrifice was usually divided into three portions. Part of it was burned on the altar to the pagan god. Part of it was returned to the offerer 
so that he went home with some meat. And then a third part was given to the cultic priest who offered to this god on behalf of the, the sacrificer. And that priest would either use it himself or he would sell it on the market. And that was one way that he supported himself. So that was the cultural issue that the Corinthians were facing. Remember, many of them had come out of that sort of a background. Now, the problem for the Christians arose in three ways. Since these public sacrifices were often sold to the market, the market then would turn around and sell them to the public cheaper. The meat that was had been offered to idols was less costly. And so there were families who struggled, should I, in order to help my budget, buy this cheaper meat, even though it has been offered before this to one of the pagan gods? <clears throat> Another way that the issue would arise was that uh, unsaved friends might invite a Christian to uh, their home for dinner. And uh, obviously they would serve a delicious meal, but that meat that was a part of the meal very likely would have been a part of an offering to a pagan god. Could a Christian go to a non-Christian home and eat that sort of food? Then a third way the, the question arose was that in many public many public social gatherings were held at pagan temples. And so as part of these public occasions, they would be in situations where they would be given food to eat that had been offered to idols. So what to do? Is it right to eat or not to eat this kind of food? To participate and to eat might suggest the approval of the idols and that whole religious system. But others said, no, that system doesn't mean anything. This is good food. It's just meat, so we should eat it. And there were people on both sides of this issue. Now, of course, that's, it's not new in the church in our day that there are people on at least two sides of every issue. That was the case here. <clears throat> now, you say, well, how does all of this affect my life because I haven't really had any meat lately offered to an idol? Well, when I first began preaching 25 years ago, it wasn't too hard, frankly, to find activities that were disputed among Christians as to whether it was right or wrong, or whether the Scripture didn't give a clear statement of prohibition. <clears throat> but there was dispute nonetheless. Uh, there are fewer of those today than there were 25 years ago. I'm not sure that's a compliment. I think that... Uh, the uh, fact that there are so few things considered by the Western Church to be taboo in the late 90s is probably a sign of our Laodicean spirit, to be honest with you. As I thought about this this morning, what kind of an issue is there today where there is disagreement among Christians? <clears throat> Something that would sort of relate to the, the idol thing here. And I came up with, with one, and there may be more, and this may not be the best one. But I know that it's relevant because I've heard it discussed within our church and within the fellowship of people I know. And that is, should a Christian go to a casino for entertainment? 
Now, we see ads in the newspaper all the time about so-and-so appearing at, at uh, one of the, the uh, casinos in the state of Minnesota. And we hear these promotions about this or that being given away and this jackpot being won. Should a Christian go to a casino? <coughs> we got two Christians here. We'll call them Jim and Tim. How's that? Nobody I know. But Jim says, you know, I've got some extra money that I use in recreation, and whether I use it for fishing or to go to a casino, uh, it's my choice. So I think I'm just going to go up to the casino this Friday night and, and see if I can win some money. And if I don't, you know, I will use it on gas and bait anyway. And so, uh, who did I say that was? Is that Jim? Okay, that was Jim. Now let's talk to Tim a minute. Tim says, you know something? <coughs> Gambling was part of my past. I did that when I was a non-Christian. And to me, to go to a casino uh, is really participating in something that's very ungodly because that's how I wasted a lot of my money and my family's money before I became a Christian. I saw the futility of all of that. So now Jim sees Tim on the street and he says, hey, you want to go to the casino with me on Friday night? <coughs> You see, there is exactly the kind of an issue we're talking about in First Corinthians chapter 8. The one man has a rationale as to why this is okay for him. He has a knowledge about it. The other person has a conscience that is stricken with guilt regarding going to a casino. Now, there are probably other examples that you can think of as to how this sort of a chapter applies. <clears throat> but let's take a look at what the Apostle says. The first thing he talks about is what knowledge says in verses 1 through 6. Now, he's talking here about a specific issue, so let's think about that for a moment. He says we all know something. We have come to know something by God's revelation. There's some knowledge, he says, that we value. He says we may not know everything yet, but there is something that we do know. He says in verse 4, we know that idols are nothing. They're nothing. Idols are lifeless. Idols may be a front for a demon spirit that receives some kind of uh, joy out of being worshipped through this idol, but the idol itself is wood, it's stone, it's some sort of a metal. Idols are nothing. No idol can represent the immaterial and glorious, immortal God of the universe. Idol is nothing. We know that. Paul says, second, we also know that there's only one God. Verses 4 through 6, he talks about this. He says this one God has revealed himself distinctively to us. He is the Father. By that, Paul is saying that God is a personal God, like a Father is a personal being. And like a father has authority in his family, this personal God has authority in our lives. He says he is the source <coughs> of the creation. He is the source of it. It all came from him. He's the cause of it. And he says we also know that this one God is our one Lord, Jesus Christ. 
He is the agent. Everything came into being through him. And not only that, it exists by him. It is sustained by him. That is who the one true God is. Paul says we know this, and the implication is that because this one God that we know created everything, there is nothing that is unclean, including this meat that has been offered to idols. <coughs> he has created all things for us to enjoy and to eat, thankfully and in a right way. And so holding a piece of meat before an idol, offering it up to the so-called God, neither defiles this piece of meat, nor does it harm it nutritionally. We know that. That's what knowledge says. In the verses 7 through 13, he talks about what love does. First of all, love realizes something. Verses 7 and 8. What does love realize? What does it realize? Well, love, in the Christian's heart, <coughs> realizes that not everyone knows the truth about idols. Now, they may, in their belief system, other Christians may know in their belief system the idols are nothing, but that hasn't yet soaked down into their soul so that it affects their behavior and their experience and their conscience. Love realizes that there are some so accustomed to idols that they cannot break away from the mental holes that those idols have on them. And eating the meat of idols reminds them of their past revulsive practices in the temple. And Paul says, in that sense, they are weak. They are not yet able to discern the spiritual principles involved in, in the meat. And love realizes that. Not everybody knows yet, down deep, this truth about the idols. Love realizes that, and therefore eating meat that is offered to idols for that person with a weak conscience defiles him. <coughs> he feels guilty. He feels condemned because of what he's done. Now, the food itself has absolutely no bearing on his relationship with God whatsoever. It's just food. But his conscience does have a bearing upon his relationship with God. And for him, with a weak conscience, to eat the meat defiles his conscience and therefore affects his relationship with God. Love realizes those things. Now, love realizes something else. <clears throat> love realizes, love remembers. Inalia realizes that love remembers. Verses 9 through 12. Love remembers something. What does love remember? Love remembers, first of all, that my liberty, that is my right to exercise my Christian freedom, must not become a stumbling block to somebody else. Verse 10 is an illustration of that, that fits in with the, the, the whole scene that we've described. Love remembers that I should not use my freedom to cause somebody else to be strengthened or encouraged to do what is wrong for them. 
it also remembers that to cause another to stumble is very serious. Love remembers that to cause another to stumble is to cause him to perish. <clears throat> now Christ died to keep him from perishing. That's what he says. Christ died to keep him from perishing eternally. But if I, using my rights and my freedom that I feel as a mature Christian, cause my brother to stumble, then I am in a sense causing him to perish. Now, Paul is using that here in a figurative sense. He means to be ruined. He suffers loss of his well-being spiritually. He suffers loss of an effective and joyful life as a Christian, of his full reward as a Christian, because I've caused him to stumble. And love remembers the third thing, and that is to cause another to stumble is also to sin against Christ. That's serious. He says, if I use my liberty to cause another person to stumble in his Christian life, I've not only sinned against him, but I have sinned, sinned against Jesus Christ himself. Because my brother is in Christ, as I am. And if I sin against him, then I cannot but sin against my Lord as well. And so Paul tells us here what love does. It realizes, it remembers, and thirdly, love resolves some things. <clears throat> love resolves. In verse 13, we come to the conclusion. And what does love resolve? Paul says, love resolves never to do anything that causes another to stumble or to be trapped in sin. Never by any means, that is the resolution, never by any means do what will cause my brother or my sister in Christ to stumble in his or her life and to become trapped in sin. Now that was Paul's own principle. That was what he applied to his life and next week in chapter 9, you'll see that. <clears throat> but here is God's point in this whole chapter about this strange meat that's offered to idols. Here's his point. That knowledge puffs up. It makes arrogance. But love builds up. It edifies. Back to verse 1. Love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. And here's what he's saying. When I, as a Christian, focus on my opinion and not the good of my brother, I will end up sinning against him and sinning against Christ, and I will ruin my brother. My opinion whether it be right or wrong, tends to puff me up if I focus on it. Now I want you to notice that what <clears throat> these people knew to be true was absolutely doctrinally correct. Idols are nothing and there is one God. What they knew to be true was right, but Paul says even good theology can make you proud. If you focus on what you know and what your opinion is, 
rather than on what is good for your brother. And so the question I have to ask myself and you today is this. Do you have an issue about which your opinion is more important than the good of your brother? Do you have an issue in your life that is more important to you than what your opinion is on it than what is good to your brother? If that's what you're focusing on, you're going to end up ruining your brother and sinning against Jesus Christ. Because when I focus on what I think and what my opinion is and what my knowledge is, even if it's right knowledge, when I focus on that, it ends up making me proud. But when I focus on the, what is good for my brother, what helps him, what ministers to him, it builds him up. And that, says Paul, is what we ought to be concerned about. And so to go back to Jim and Tim, <clears throat> what ought Jim to do? What should be his decision about going to the casino? Should he go and not tell Tim because he doesn't want Tim to stumble? Should he forget going altogether? I leave that to you to decide. This is one of those cases where the Word of God does not give us yea or nay. It says, here is the principle. Now you apply it. And remember that how you apply it is what you'll give an answer for as a judgment seat of Christ. Let's pray together. As we come to the Lord's table, it is important that we come with our hearts prepared and cleansed. It is important that there not be issues between us and others. It is vital that we be living our lives under the Lordship of Christ. It is very important that we not be focusing on our opinions what we know to be true, but rather how we can be used by God to build up our brother, who may be weaker than we are in certain respects. So let's examine our hearts as we come to this table. And remember that that's how Jesus lived. And that's what these elements represent. That he went to the cross and gave up his rights as the Holy Son of God. He gave up his rights and laid down his life for what does us eternal good. <clears throat> Lord, as you partake of this bread this morning, may the Holy Spirit cause each of us to search our hearts and to meditate deeply 
about what this bread means so that we may truly eat it with gratitude. Amen. The same spirit of this table this morning, emphasizing our relationship with the Lord and with one another, we have an opportunity to participate in the Elders Fund today. That fund is specifically there to help others in the Grace Church family as they have financial need. The early church practice supporting each other and bearing each other's burdens, even the financial ones that, that they would run into. If you care to participate in that fund this morning, the offering box in the back of the church can be used for that and um, indicate on the check that this is for the elders' fund. Also tonight, don't forget, we have the Grace Gospel Reunion tonight. That'll be a fun time celebrating the Lord and old-time gospel music. Be sure to come on out for that. It's a warm, sunny uh, Sunday, but uh, come on back for that anyway. So it'll be a fun time here this evening. And as we leave the Lord's house this morning, let's get up and greet each other. Those that you haven't met, say hi to, or as you say in Colorado, say howdy. And we'll see you all back here next week. We're dismissed.